Well, good morning, church. So good to see you. I hope you're all doing well. How are we? Are we good? Everybody have a good Christmas? Eat lots of good food and have good fellowship with family and friends, I hope. Uh, I think everybody knows uh, we're going to, the, the layout of the service is a little bit different today, so we're, we're letting the kids go off to his kids now, uh, but it looks like you all pretty well have that under wraps. Hey, if you don't know me, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and as I often say, that, that affords me the uh, the great uh, joy and privilege, uh, responsibility of, of bringing to you God's Word. And um, that's something that, that, that is just a delight of mine. And um, uh, we are in a series in John. If you don't know, we have been in John for a good bit now. We're going to be in there for some time longer. Uh, we will be taking a break at the first of the year for uh, a handful of weeks to do a, a, a short series uh, but then we'll pick back up uh, where we where we end today. Uh, we're, we're in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, which I'll read to you here in just a, mo- in a moment. But what I want you to do is I want you to put a bookmark or stick your finger in Mark chapter 6. Because we're going to be referencing Mark chapter 6 a good bit today as well. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. Um, And you might notice if you're flipping there or scrolling there that that these are the same tellings, the same account of this story that we're going to look at today. Um, But as you're turning there, again, just uh, I want to reiterate, I I hope that you have had a joyous Christmas holiday and that the the focus uh, has certainly been on family and and fellowship together. But but more than that, the, the focus has been on, uh, just like the songs that we sang, the, the reason that we celebrate the Christmas holiday is because of the birth of our Savior, that He came in the form of a man, and He lived a perfect life without sin, uh, and He gave the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God. Um, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh, came and, and gave His life uh, on account of our sins, which is truly the, the greatest gift that, that anyone in history uh, could ever receive. Uh, and, it, and it has been given entirely out of God's good grace, His good uh, will just to do so. And so I hope that your, your heart's affections this, this Christmas season have been stirred up to the Lord and that you have honored God in, in the time that you have spent um, just with family and, and even opening presents. Uh, And so enough of that, though, bringing us to John 6, because we've got a a good bit of ground that I want to try to cover today. So if you're in John 6, let's pick up at the very beginning, because that's always the best place to start. John chapter 6, verse 1, going through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Church, pray with me, please. Father God, Lord, we come to you right now, I I hope and trust, with grateful hearts. Grateful just to be able um, to, to read from your word, to know that your word holds truth and life for us that this isn't uh, merely some, some story that has been told and retold or potentially fabricated. Or, Lord, we know that this is true. We know that this is uh, the work of our Savior who performed such a miraculous sign for the people out of, out of the, the love and, and generosity and graciousness of his heart. And so just help us to see today uh, that that Jesus that we read in the scriptures is still alive and well and is that same Jesus today that we worship, that we honor with our, with our singing, with our prayers, with the reading of your word, with the preaching of your word, God. May we glorify our Savior who came in the, in the form of, of a lowly baby, lived a perfect life so that we didn't have to because we never could. Lord, be with us now as, as, as we, we take a closer look at this text. Lord, feed us spiritually here this morning. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be edified by the, the preaching of your word. And Lord, hide me behind your cross so that um, I say nothing other than, than what you would have for us today. That you would be glorified in all that is said here Because this is all for you and about you. And we ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. So John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that. It's going to take us a good good bit of time to get through it uh, when we get into uh, uh, the, the, the new year. It's the longest chapter in the New Testament. And it follows Jesus stating in chapter 5 that he has all authority. Right? If you were to go back and look at chapter 5, you see Jesus saying things like, I have all authority of the Father, that he's given it to me. I don't do anything except for what the Father wills for me to do. And Jesus is also the one responsible for enacting judgment. Right? Not, not during his earthly ministry, but he will enact judgment uh, in, in a, a, f- a time in the future, a day that we are, are unaware of. But Jesus is stating all of these things emphatically about himself. He's saying, this is who I am. And then we get into chapter 6 of John. And we see Jesus doing some, some pretty remarkable things that we're going to see. And I'm going to explain to you here in just a moment. Um, within chapter 6, there, there is so much rich, redemptive, historical 
perspectives that just go all throughout the chapter. Right? Jesus is going to point back to Moses and the Exodus. I don't know if you've seen that in this text before, but, but I, I trust you'll see this as we go along. And John, the, the, the apostle, right? not John the Baptist, but John the apostle who, who wrote this letter, he wants us to see that Jesus is the greater Moses. Much like I've, I, I shared with you weeks ago about how, how Jesus came to be not just a, a, a better um, Adam, but he came to be the perfect Adam. John's going to say the same thing about Je- Jesus regarding Moses. And that, uh, the, that the gospel that Jesus brings is, is going to be a greater exodus. And just as Moses led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt and he led them into the promised land, uh, a life of fulfillment and abundance and blessing, so Jesus came to lead his children, his, his sheep, the children of God, us today, out of sin and out of death, out of all of that bondage and that slavery. He's going to lead us out of that into a better place, a, a better promised land which is going to be the new heaven and the new earth. Right? That's, that's, what we long, that's what we ought to, church. That's what we should be longing for today. That we should be looking with great expectation, even as we celebrate the birth of Christ during Christmas, it should, it should cause us to look with great expectation to, to the hope that we have set before us, which is a new heaven and a new earth, a perfect life without sin, without shame, without sickness, without guilt. Right, and we see that picture, we're not going to go there, but that picture of, of a new heaven and a new earth, if you're to flip over to, to Revelation chapter 21, all of that's laid out there. But what we see in this story is Jesus performing this miracle of multiplying bread and fish. It says in the text, or, or you might even have a, a heading in this passage, pas- portion of passage uh, that says that Jesus fed 5,000. But we we know from reading the text, there were 5,000 men. And the timing of this this feeding of the 5,000, I think, isn't coincidental. John tells us that it occurs just before the Passover, right? Which again, when was the Passover instituted? During the Exodus. So John is pointing at a, a better Moses, a better Exodus, all in Jesus, all in the gospel. And the meal that, that inaugurated Israel's journey out into the wilderness, um, Jesus is going to come and he doesn't just provide elements for the Passover meal, but, but he is the Passover himself. And we're going to see this, unfortunately not today, but as we get further into the text, and Jesus is saying more and more that I am the bread of God. I am the bread of life. I am the meal. It's, I'm the Passover meal itself. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we are to feed on him and be nourished by him. So in John chapter 6, we, we watch Jesus work a miracle with bread that, that they ate every single day, right? Bar, barley loaves were just the simple everyday bread that the poorest of the poor ate. That was, their, that was their everyday staple that they could go to. But then throughout the, the rest of this, this long chapter, Jesus is going to show people, um, honestly, with, with pretty, uh, at times, 
offensive language. Um, not for the sake of being offensive, but the truths that he says, they're hard to hear. People don't know what to do with them. They struggle with them, which again, we're going to see not today, but he uses some pretty strong language again to point that this miracle of the bread, it's, it's about him. He is the bread of God that comes down from heaven. Just like the manna that came down from heaven to feed Israel while they were in the wilderness. Jesus is saying, I am that. I am the bread that feeds and nourishes you. And by the time that Jesus is done with these comparisons throughout the text, many of his followers are going to abandon him. Because he says things that are hard to hear. He says things that are hard to comprehend. And I don't want to spoil that as, as we get to it. But So for today, I, I really just want us to focus on how Jesus set up this long discussion by feeding over 5,000 people by using just five loaves of barley bread and two fish. So going back to verse 1, I'll just read a few verses here. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the, the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So it starts off saying, after this, Jesus went away to the other side. After this, after what? Remember, John doesn't express events in a really tight chronology. He's giving us really high snapshots of really important moments in the life and ministry of Christ. So he's giving us these, these snapshots. And so this phrase after this, it's merely just letting us know that an unknown period of time has passed between two occurrences. Right? And there's some debate even on, on the, the ordering of chapters 4, 5, and 6, which I'm not going to get into because it isn't, it isn't pertinent, but just to know that we, we can't look at this as just a, a, a succinct chronological order of events. But it's just a period of time that passes. But here's what we do know. We know that Jesus and his disciples, they were drawing crowds in everywhere they went. John doesn't tell us this, but in other gospel accounts, because church, understand, this is the one miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four gospels. And they all are a slightly bit different just from, from different retellings. Not that they contradict one another, but they're, just, they're different retellings of the same event. And we know that, uh, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, but in, I think it was in Matthew, um, perhaps, um, or maybe it was Mark, I can't remember. But uh, Herod the Great, who was, who was king, um, after John the Baptist had been beheaded and killed, and, and Jesus was growing in, in such renown and such popularity that he was concerned that maybe, maybe this, this person, this prophet, was, was John the Baptist reincarnated, that he, was, he had come back to life. And it tells us in another gospel account that Jesus knew this and departed. So, as I said, Jesus is drawing crowds. We know from, from Luke 9 that, that, that Jesus had been given uh, the disciple, he had given the disciples authority. Luke 9 is the other, as another retelling of this, this same event. 
In Luke 9, we're told that Jesus had given his disciples authority, right? Maybe, maybe you recall the story where he sends them out. He's given them authority over demons and diseases, and he sends them out to do his work. And, they'll cut, and they come back, and they tell Jesus of all they had done. And then the next thing we see in that story in Luke is they depart for this place that, that we see this event take place, which I'm going to share with you in just a moment. But I suspect that Jesus knew how weary his disciples were from this work that they, this ministry that they had been doing. He saw that they, they were tired and they needed to retreat for just a bit. It says in Mark chapter 6 verse 31 that he instructed them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they were so busy performing miracles and teaching, casting out demons and ministering to those who were in need that they didn't have time to eat. And so Jesus wants to take his disciples away for a short respite. They set out across the Sea of Galilee. Most likely, uh, spent some time trying to really figure out uh, how these events because um, I'm me and I needed to do this. I wanted to know the timeline. So I think that they're, they're departing from Capernaum, right? Which if, and if you know the, the layout of, of that terrain, it's on kind of the, the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they're setting across the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee over to the northeast side where the Jordan pours into the Sea of Galilee before it empties out into, it, it turns into the, sea, the, the Jordan River again down south. Um, maybe that's not important to you, but uh, I'm a nerd and I like those things um, because it helps me visualize w what's taking place here. So they set out probably from Capernaum. They travel to a place near the town of Beth Bethsaida, which was about five miles away, roughly. And this was a town, as I said, located on the northeast region of um, the Sea of Galilee, where the Jordan River feeds into the sea which is really actually just a lake, but they, it was a big body of water for them at the time, so I guess they called it a sea. They go there for a short retreat. However, we're, we're told again in Mark, if you were to look in, in Mark chapter 6, it tells us specifically that the people saw them going and they recognized them. They knew who they were. He, they, the people saw them leaving and they ran there ahead of them on foot and arrived before Jesus and the disciples did. That's Mark chapter 6, verse 33, if you want to look at it. But then if we go back into John, we read that, that a large crowd was, was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So understand something, church. Uh, I completely understand why the crowd would have done that. It's because of, of, of what Jesus was doing. It wasn't because of who he was, who they thought he was. It was because of the things that he was doing. They were following him which we've seen through the first several chapters of the book of John. Time and time again, Jesus says, you, you just want to see the signs that I perform. You're only following because of the signs that I perform, because I feed you, because I heal you, because, because it isn't because of who you think I am. And we see the very same thing happening here. And I'll let the cat out of the bag. There's even more of that later on in John chapter 6. He, he stresses it even more later on in the text. But it wasn't for his teaching. It wasn't for the good of their souls that they followed him. But instead, it was either to, 
to perhaps satisfy some curiosity that they had, which again, I can't fault them for that. I think I would have done the same. They wanted to see these miracles that were being performed by this man that we, we can't explain it. Or they themselves wanted to be healed. Get into to, to verse chapter five, or excuse me, verse, verse five. I'd love to spend more time on, on verse four and the Passover um, and, and the, the correlations there, but we unfortunately don't have time. But what we see in verse five of John chapter six, lifting up his eyes, that being Jesus, seeing a large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, as, as I said, in, in Mark's account, we hear that when Jesus arrived, the people were already waiting on him. And in their, their excitement, I can only assume that they rushed off to see Jesus. They knew where he was going, and they rushed off. And they most likely didn't give any consideration to the, the provisions of food or lodging. Right? They're not far away, but, but church understands something. In that day and time when travel was done only by foot or, or by boat, um, you know, five miles roughly, and that's just, that's just an estimate. Bethsaida isn't there anymore, so we don't know. We have a spot where we think it was, and this is even, this is a desolate spot outside of town, so we don't know. So anywhere, I'll say between five and ten miles. They came without provision of food or lodging. And according to the other gospel accounts of this story, Jesus ministered to the people all day. He taught them about the kingdom of God. He healed them uh, of, of diseases, all of those who were in need. He ministered to them. He met their needs. Uh, and, and, and Mark notes specifically that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them, and he ministered and served to them all day. That word compassion tells us that he felt the needs of the people. And so he's ministering to them throughout the day. And after some time has passed, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and it's getting late. You should send the people away into the, the, the nearby towns or countryside to find food and lodging. No doubt people were, were getting hungry. They were, they were tired. The disciples themselves were tired. Send them off. In Mark, Jesus, his response to this, this comment is given to all of the disciples. But, but in John, we read that he, John seems to, to single out both Philip and Andrew. And, and hear me, I think Jesus is still speaking to all of his disciples. But for some reason, John points out Philip and Andrew specifically. And it even states Andrew being the brother of, of Peter. So you could say the three of them were, were pointed out. And I, I don't know why that is other than this, this one thing that, that I know to be true is that all three of those men were from Bethsaida. They were from that town. That's where they, they lived. And so perhaps looking to them like, you know folks here. What, what can we do? 
He asked them this question. According to John, he asks Philip this, this question in order to test him. And I assume it's to test all of them. Because John tells us Jesus knew what he was going to do. He wasn't worried about this large crowd of people. Right? It tells us it was 5,000 men. Most scholars guess that it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people. Right? There's just 5,000 men that are being counted and recorded. That doesn't account for the women and the children that were there. That number seems really high uh, in, in, in comparison to 5,000. But that's really kind of the consensus that I got from everywhere that I, I read. Uh, that's the estimate. But Jesus knew what he was going to do for these, let's just say, 20,000 people. But he asked the question as an opportunity for the disciples to gain a deeper spiritual understanding of who he is. He wanted them to see his power and his sufficiency in practice. He wanted them to appropriate his power and sufficiency properly to him. To see how that power that he has as God in the flesh could truly make a difference in their lives. More so than just feeding and meeting needs and healing. Which is what he does. But he doesn't, does it, he doesn't do that just for the sake of, of doing that thing. To meet needs. There's something bigger going on in all of this. We get to verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So this response is a, is a very practical one. It's a very practical solution, um, or at least uh, uh, consideration. We, we can't feed all of these people, so send the multitude away. Jesus answers them in, in Mark, and, and he tells the disciples, um, they don't need to go away. Like, don't send the crowd away. You give them something to eat. And I think that's important for us to see in Mark, because then that, that changes a little bit of what we see in Andrew's response. You give them something to eat. And so I'm, hear, hear me, this is me reading between the lines a little bit. I don't know that this is what happened, but I, I suspect that Andrew, he hears that, he goes out into the crowd. What, what food do we have? What, what can we gather up to feed? My Lord told us that we, we are to feed you. What, what do we have? What do we have? And he, he goes from person to person to person in the crowd, and he comes back, and he tells Jesus, Lord, we just have this boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. How, how can we feed all of these people with that? Or even if you look at Philip's answer, how can we buy over 200 denarii worth of food? One denarii was one day's wage, which equated to one day's provision of food. He's saying, working under the assumption that there's 20,000 people here, like, we don't have that kind of money. So Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go, go and see. And upon finding out, they said to him, 
as I shared, we, we, we have here just five barley loaves and, and two fish. What, what can we do with that? And as I said, a barley loaf was a, was a cheap bread used by the poorest of the poor. And it's only pointed out here in this telling in John. And I think it's, it's on purpose. Right? Here's what I think John's doing. It's, it is, it's an allusion to, uh, it's, it's a pointing back to uh, the, the miracle performed by the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. Right? I'm not going to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, we see Elisha perform a miracle of feeding 100 men with barley loaves. And if you read the text, it's almost a mirror image of what Jesus says and does. There's, there's, there's bread left over after the hundred men ate. And I think, I suspect that the Jews knew this. They, they expected that miracles like those of Elisha would, would happen during the messianic time, the prophet that was to come. They expected these types of miracles to be performed. All right, so we have five, five barley loaves. There's some imagery there. There's some significance to that. But you can't feed 20,000 people with it. And then we have two, two fish, which were probably um, some, some form of a pickled fish uh, that were, were meant to be eaten as a side dish. And the reason I, I, I say that, and, and the reason why many historians believe that, is because how else could you travel with fish and, and it not go bad on you in a hurry? And so these were small pickled fish that were meant to be eaten as a side dish. And so I only bring that up to say, here's what I think Andrew's point was in saying that. Is we have this tiny, piddly, really not much good for anything snack of like bread that's not great and fish that there's not much to. How can we use this tiny meal for such an enormous crowd of people? But here's the thing, church. Remember where, where we've been in John, the disciples, the things they've seen. They've seen Jesus turn water into wine. They've seen Jesus heal the, the nobleman's son from uh, over a great distance. They knew of how Jesus healed the crippled man at the pool of Beth, Bethesda. Excuse me. They knew, they knew what he could do. They had seen what Jesus had done. So why didn't they understand what he could do in this situation? They, they miss it again, time and time again. I think it's because the disciples still had an incomplete view of Christ. I think their, their problem, and, and very often is, is, is the root of our own problem, is, is they, they, they aren't seeing the fullness of the Messiah in Christ. The expectation is still different from what they're seeing, which is how we'll see this portion of Scripture in verse 15 close out. All right, the crowd's going to miss it too. But thankfully, Jesus is willing to continue to show them and us exactly who he is. So the solution that we see for the disciples came in this miraculous display of power in Christ. 
right? And this is honestly one of my favorite miracles performed by Jesus. He instructs the disciples to have the crowd set down, a crowd of, of 5,000 men, as I said, along with women and children, somewhere in the number of, of 20,000 people. He takes the bread and he gives thanks unto God. All right, so see that he's, he's blessing God for the provision of the food. He isn't blessing the meal. He's blessing God. And this is similar, but not exactly the same as what occurred during the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And this phrase, gave thanks, it says that Jesus gave thanks for the bread. He gave, he gave thanks unto God. That phrase actually stems from the Greek word, which we get the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is what you might also know as communion or the Lord's Supper. It's the same word. However, it's worth noting that, that the Jews in their culture commonly gave thanks to God before eating a meal. And the host would then distribute the food after doing so. So this giving thanks for the gift of food is a, a symbolic act of, of giving it into the hands of God. Just for, the, for this provision this, that, that we're about to distribute, it's just, it's just giving thanks unto God. The Eucharist, however, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, is something that, that we will see much later on in, in the Gospel account. It's something that is observed in private, just between the disciples and, uh, and Jesus. And so while I think there are some similarities, um, it, I don't think that it is necessarily pointing at that. But this miracle, however, was the most public of Jesus' miracles, arguably. And in my opinion, I think it was one of his greatest. Uh, and I'll, I'll share with you why that is. I think it is the greatest because um, I, I don't know what to do with it. Like you can think about the other miracles that Jesus performed. And I'm not trying in any way to, to simplify the miracles of Jesus. They were miracles because... They, they were otherworldly. They were, they were divine acts of power. But also remember that, that Jesus was there when the world was made. He created these things. And so he's well within his power and authority, um, if, if you'll pardon the phrase, to, to control and manipulate these things. So I can understand how Jesus could even rearrange the molecules of water to be able to walk on it. Um, I'm not saying that that's what happened, but in my brain, that's how I can think about these things. I can, I can understand how maybe the same occurrence would have happened with turning water into wine, but I don't know how Jesus made something out of nothing. He has bread and fish that he's multiplying. I understand that. But have you ever thought about how he did it? How do you, how do you multiply something that exists? I know it's because he's God, but... This is why I think this is one of his greatest miracles that blows my mind and understands something. This isn't me. It is a little bit trying to, to understand and comprehend Jesus as God, but it, it isn't like I need to do that. I just want to. Ultimately, what it does is it causes me to worship him, to, to give him praise and glory and adoration because I don't believe that anyone else can do what he did. And he did it not because of who he is, because he's God in the flesh. And so... 
This is one of those moments I've shared with you so many times, church, where, where getting into the doctrine turns into devotion for me. It turns upwards into praise because I don't know what to do with it. And so Jesus performs this miracle that I can't comprehend, that I can't make sense of. How does he make something out of nothing? But he does. I believe that he does. Hear me, I absolutely, wholeheartedly, unapologetically believe that he did exactly what the text says. But, but due to a great deal of postmodern thinking that has become more and more popular, um, many people doubt that Jesus performed this miracle exactly the way that the text says. Some have proposed that, that Christ didn't literally multiply the bread and the fish. Instead, what maybe he did, some claim, is that the miracle happened in the people's hearts. Because when that boy came forward with the bread and the fish, and he gave it out of the goodness of his heart, then that, that inspired others to do the same. And everyone pulled out their food and shared it with everyone, and everyone had plenty to eat. And for a very, very logical black and white mind in, in me, that makes sense. Don't panic. But that, that makes sense. It seems more logical to think that that's what happened. The problem is this. Church, if, if you don't know, I, I don't think you can have a high enough view of Scripture. And that explanation spits upon the truthfulness and the sufficiency and the authority and the reliability of the Word of God. And it is simply not what the Scripture says. So we don't need to, to attempt to make the Word of God say something else just because we might not be able to comprehend it. Just because we can't make sense of it, we don't have to do this this doctrinal gymnastic act to try to get the text to say what we want it to say so that we can understand it and feel better about it. I believe what happened is what it says. I don't know how he did it because he's God in the flesh. But without going off on a tangent, I want to, I want to, make, I want to be really clear and, and make absolutely no apology when I tell you that, that here at Freshwater, this, this body of believers, we embrace the whole counsel of God as it's revealed in the word. We believe that the, that the scriptures are sacred. We believe that God supernaturally guided the authors of the Bible to write exactly what happened, exactly what God wanted to communicate. Everything in, this, in scripture is there because God desired for it to be there. And the word says that Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. I, I can't explain that. But here's the thing. I, I believe it. He met a need for those people. He had compassion upon them. He felt their needs. And he met that need. I believe that, that those who go to God with the need I don't think that we'll find God being stingy. I don't think that we'll find a God who is obstinate or who, or who doesn't have time or who doesn't have the desire 
if I could use that word, to meet the needs of his children. I believe he provides for our needs with abundant grace. But to, to be certain, church, hear me, that by no means, no, no means at all um, means that we'll receive everything that we want or everything that we even think that we need. Those things that we might think that we need out of our own sinful and selfish desires, they can even be good desires in nature. We can go to God with those things, but we, we ought not think that, that God is just always going to meet the needs that we have exactly the way that we want him to meet them. But what we must remember always in this is that, that Christ is more than enough to truly satisfy the needs of his followers forever. Right? And so in this Christmas season, um, in, in this, this holiday that we put so much emphasis, or at least I hope we put so much emphasis on the Christ, we, we ought to remember that in that, in that birth and that life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection, all of our needs have been met. All of our needs have been and will be satisfied in him. And remember, genuine needs, not just desires, Picking back up in verse 12. When they had eaten their fill, the, the crowd, that is, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So following this, we, we see that Christ commands his disciples to fill baskets with, with leftover food. I think it was to show, one, the, the, the nature of the miracle. It is to say, see, see who Christ is. See the thing that he did. If Christ is declaring himself, look, look at the thing that I did, how I, I provide in abundance because of who I am. And if you'll think back to uh, the, the sermon that I shared with you about Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, it was, it was the good wine at the end, and it was in abundance, and all of the, the, the again, allusions and pointing to the old covenant, and how the, the, the jars that were used for ceremonial washing, how they were filled to the brim with water, and then how the water was turned into the best of wine after everyone had already had their fill of wine. So again, John is showing us that Jesus provides in abundance. His grace is unending. He's the perfect Adam. He's the perfect Moses. He's the, he's the, he's the perfect one that fulfills it all. Which is again why I, I point to Jesus saying on the cross, it's finished. I've done it. The work is complete. No more has to be done. We don't have to, to toil and strive in order to earn God's favor by us doing good things and keeping the law. Yes, we should so strongly desire to follow the word of God. But it isn't based on merit. 
It's based on grace, abundant grace that God gives freely, not because of anything that we've done, but out of just the good nature of his own heart. I think there's also perhaps a, a less, another lesson in, in this, in Jesus gathering up the leftover food. I think we might see, at least it, it is for me, a lesson on stewardship here. Jesus tells the disciples to gather, uh, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So I, I think it's good for us to, to be mindful that the good resources that God entrusts to us, whatever, whatever that is, to be mindful of those things and, and not to just seek to live frivolous lives of, of self-indulgence, that we just, we, we just use these things for, for what we think um, are, are right and good without ever giving it any, any uh, deeper consideration. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, we're told that, to, that everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Now, there's a lot of context within that passage that I just read to you, but I believe one of the things that we see in it means that, that we, we are held responsible for what we have. These things, these good things, these good gifts, these resources that God has given us, we're responsible for those things. So if we're blessed with, with talents or abilities or wealth or knowledge or an abundance of time or whatever it is, then it's expected that we use these things well to the glory of God and, and, and to the benefit of others. I think that's what Jesus is. None of it's going to waste. There's, there's certainly symbolic things that are happening that I, I wish we had the time to go into because we see another account of Jesus feeding Gentiles and he gathers he multiplies the food and he gathers the baskets and, and the, the, the numbers are different in, in what he gathers. I could talk about how there's probably some correlation between the 12 baskets and the 12 tribes and how Jesus provides enough for his people, but we don't have time. The miracle certainly seems to, to have been meant, though, to point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the prophet, the one that they were waiting for. He's saying, that's me. I am him. <clears throat> because he doesn't give any objection. The conclusion that the crowd comes to, they, they, they wanted to come and take him by force and make him king. They call him a prophet. And he doesn't say, no, 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 that's not who I am. He's declaring in this act, that is who I am. But then the crowd immediately comes to an improper understanding of what that means. And what they've witnessed concerning Christ and what he's done. And I think this is a far too common error that people, ourselves included, make. I don't think we do it intentionally, but I think oftentimes... We, we distort or even corrupt the truth of who Christ is because of tightly held convictions that at times are false beliefs. That's what this crowd did. They were waiting on the prophet. They were Jewish people waiting on the, the long-expected prophet. <clears throat> and they wanted to make him king. And again, bear in mind, 
The other gospel account that says Herod is wondering who this person is. Is this, is this prophet, John the Baptist, come back to life? Jesus leaves. I think it's intentional. And so now Jesus is saying, I, I, this is going to end poorly if, if they establish me as king in this way. Not that Jesus ever considered it. <clears throat> but they didn't have the full picture. And, and thankfully, we, we have the benefit of having the full picture of God's plan throughout all of redemptive history in the form of the scriptures. So my admonishment for us today is that we set aside any potentially inherited or assumed beliefs that we have to seek to know the fullness of God's word. I always want us to go back to the text. What does the text say? That yes, we, we come in with ideas and assumptions and, um, and beliefs that we want to hold on to because we've always had them. And I'm not saying that we, sh we ought to, to do away with those things, but I want us to approach the text always wanting to see what it says and not what we want it to say. And that's what this crowd did with Christ. This is the, this is the king that they wanted. <clears throat> so we go to the word to seek the fullness of what it has to say. So I, that means I'm, I'm less interested in, in what I, in what Brandon wants God's word to say. I'm not interested in, in me reading the text that way. I, I want to know what it truly says. And church, understand sometimes that, that takes some work. We have to do work to, to find those things out. And, and the beautiful thing is, is that we do that together as a body, as a family. We, we get into the word to see what it says, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives. I've said it up here before, and I'll, I'll say it again. Any correct belief that we have about God is a form of idolatry. I don't say that to step on your toes. I say it to say I'm guilty of it as well. That if we don't have a proper, if you think back to the, the series in Exodus that we did, when Jesus lays out the way he wants to be worshipped by Israel, he did it with a purpose. I want to be worshipped this way. This is the God that I am. This is who I want you to see me as. So any, any, any false belief that we have about God is idolatry. And I do not want us to be guilty of committing idolatry. But we do this. Uh, JT and I were just talking about this this week. Um, there, there's a, a quote by a theologian that I think is, is very true and applies well to this point. And, and that is to say that the, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Right? And those are hard words to hear, I understand. But, but, under, but hear them from someone who deeply loves you and is concerned for the care of your soul. I want us to know who God truly is, what his word truly says, who our Messiah really is. And not who we want him to be. Because <clears throat> church, I promise you, who Christ really is, is who we want him to be. Regardless of, of what preconceived ideas we have. <clears throat> so here's what I think 
is, is the takeaway from all of this for us. If, if, there's, if there's an application portion of this sermon, here it is. The, the meaning of this miracle is, is Christ's divine power in union with his divine grace. But not only that, it, 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 it's also a confirmation that, that we are to seek the things of God, the kingdom of God, with, with the promised belief that all of these other things will be added to us. All right, that's John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. That we seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these other things, these needs that we have, they'll, they'll be given to us. They'll be met. Maybe not exactly the way that we think they should be or the way we want them to be, but we, we can have confidence in knowing that Jesus is enough. He provides all that we need. So seek first the kingdom of God. We can know that if, if Christ took care of those in the crowd and many others, if he took care of, of, of those who were led to him by a sudden impulse just, just to have a need met, and he met it, how would, how would he desert us if we seek him with a sincere heart? If we seek Christ in a, out of a sincere heart, wanting to know our Savior and for him to meet our needs, he, he will not turn us away. So, so here again, right? A day after Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. In this miracle, see Christ saying, I have divine power and, and it is in union with my divine grace. All power and authority has been given to me. I can do it all. The Father has sent me. And as I've said, he, he will sometimes allow us to suffer hardships for sure right there's probably not anyone in this room that couldn't say that 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 they've experienced that i've experienced that we still suffer hardships we still experience trials and even though i have failed to believe this in the past i hope and pray daily that i will never fail it again to know that in those hardships, whenever they might come, that Jesus will never deprive me of his aid. He will never not be there. He will never not meet the true need that I have. And that's what this miracle is, is, is telling me. He's declaring to us. He is the long-awaited prophet. won't go into detail in verse 15, but it, it tells us that, that Jesus knew what the crowd was up to, and he withdrew away to a mountain by himself. And that will lead us into the coming verses in John 6 when we get there in however many weeks we get there. It's kind of like, you know, when the the last episode of, of the season of whatever show it is that you love. Now you have to just, you have to wait all summer long until it, it relaunches. Um, that's what this is going to be. I want you to take that away though, church. I want you to know who Christ is. 
And so naturally, if, if you're here this morning and you don't know, then I want you to respond here in just a moment when we sing. In whatever fashion you think that, if you need to come, I'll be over here. If you want to come and speak or pray or just respond to Christ where you are in your seats, then by all means do so. But I'll have the, the musicians come, and, and I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And then, church, I just want you to reflect on, on these words. I want you to think deeply about who your Savior is. So let me pray. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful to know that in our Savior we have the bread of life. That he is the bread come down from heaven, the, the, the true and living bread and gives us life and gives us hope. So Father, I just ask that You would help us to, to see and desire for Jesus to be our, our bread, our nourishment. That he would be our life, our hope, our, our fullness, our, our joy. That he would be our portion forever. And so, Lord, wherever we are in life today, be it in unrepentant sin or being without Christ, without the hope of salvation. Or if we just need our hearts stirred up for you, if we've gotten distracted in just the hustle and the bustle of, of life and, and the holidays, and we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, Lord, just may your spirit come and move amongst us now in this place Convict, teach, inspire. Father, I just ask that you would, you would do that work in our hearts and our minds here today. And Lord, that above all, we worship you. We give you glory. We give you thanks. For you are the one true God and there is no one else like you. Father, we are so similar to you as being your creation, but you are not like us. And I'm thankful for that, God, because I know who I am. And I need a God who is not like me. We worship you. We love you. We thank you, God, for your steadfast love and your grace and your patience. I just ask that we would honor you as we now stand and sing and give you praise, Lord. We ask all this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.